You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, on her 90th birthday, a celebration of Carol Burnett. For more than half a century, she's remained a powerful comedic force, starting with her titular program, The Carol Burnett Show, which ran from 1967 through 1978. In that intervening decade, Burnett, through her undeniable comedic talent, dismantled the boys' club of network television. Whether it's her gift for physical comedy, her quick wit, or note-perfect impressions, Burnett has inspired a generation of performers. Kristen Wiig, Laura Dern, Lisa Kudrow, Taraji P. Henson, Bill Hader, Steve Carell, Allison Janney, Amy Poehler, all of whom, by the way, will be honoring the trailblazer in Carol Burnett, 90 Years of Laughter and Love, airing tonight on NBC at 8, 7 central. The televised birthday special will be available to stream on Peacock starting tomorrow, April 27th. But for today, I wanted to return to this conversation with Burnett that we had back in 2020. In revisiting this conversation, I remember thinking how strange this all was. To be quarantined, taping a podcast in a closet with Carol Burnett, 
who I am sure had no idea who I was at the start of this phone call. And yet, by the end, as we walked through her upbringing in California, an act of kismet that led her to New York City, the creation of her seminal variety show, how she grappled with grief, I felt deeply connected to that voice on the other line. And it's my hope, as we celebrate her 90th birthday through this recorded phone call, that you will too. So, this is Carol Burnett, now and forever. Happy birthday. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi, it's Carol Burnett calling. I'm pleased to have you here. Well, thank you. How are you doing right now? Well, I think I'm doing okay, considering what's going on in the world. My husband and I are hunkered down in our home, and uh, we uh, do crossword puzzles and uh, go for social distancing walking and uh, watch good old classic movies and just grateful that we we have a food on the table and a roof over our heads. And I, my heart just breaks for all the people who aren't as fortunate as we are. You are in a very good and lucky and fortunate situation. Yes. But what I think differs from you versus many other people is that you grew up in a very uncomfortable situation, right? Well, people looking at it would say very uncomfortable. It at times was, but you know, everybody in our neighborhood, we were all poor. We, you know, nobody had any money. So it was just the norm mm-hmm. at the time. So I didn't feel the world was against me or, or I wasn't sad. I actually, I was kind of a happy kid for the most part. I was born in Texas and then my grandmother and I came out to California when I was seven. And uh, we lived in an apartment building a block north of Hollywood Boulevard. It was one room. My mother lived down the hall. And I slept on the couch until I was 21. (laughs) But growing up in that neighborhood, there were a lot of kids, and we were all kind of in the same boat. And my best girlfriend, she was being raised by her grandmother. But I never felt unloved or even abused, really. My mother was an alcoholic, and so was my father. My father was the sweetest. (laughs) He, He was like a drunk Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) He was just so sweet. And Mama had a bit of a temper when she drank. But I did well in school. I loved school. And neighborhood kids, we would, you know, save our pennies and go to the movies and then come back and play act the movies that we just seen, which is how I got to do the Tarzan yell because I would play with my friends and (laughs) she would be Jane. (laughs) I would be Tarzan and I taught myself to yell. Don't worry. I- I'm not going to ask you to do <laughs> it don't. on this podcast. <laughs> no. And, and so it wasn't a terrible childhood at all. You said that you and your grandmother would go to the movie theaters and watch several films a week. Yes. I, I love this thing that you did when the movies would end and you would run back home to your house. You would reenact the film you just saw. Yeah. Did some part of you know then as a kid that you wanted to be like the larger than life figures on the screen? No, not at all, because all of us play acted and did that. It wasn't just me. And I didn't I wasn't really 
thinking that I would someday be a performer. Mm -hmm. I was interested at first in cartooning. And then when I got to uh, junior high and high school, I was editor of my high school, of the school papers. And I thought, well, this might be interesting because mama always wanted to be a, a journalist or whatever. She Her big thing was she wanted to enter a few movie stars for fan magazines. And she was successful a couple of few times. She freelanced and uh, interviewed Rita Hayworth, Bob Hope, George Montgomery. She, a few, but she never got a steady job. But when I started being editor of my high school paper, she said, you can be a journalist. Why don't you? And, and I did like to write. And so then I thought, that's what I'll do. But there was always music in the house. Mama always had her record player going. And then sometimes she would come to our room and Nanny and Mama and I would sit around the kitchen table. She'd play her, her ukulele and we would sing. When you graduated Hollywood High School in 1951, mm-hmm. your month's rent was about $30. That's right. And you got accepted into UCLA, which had a yearly tuition of about $42. That's right. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. <laughs> well, I mean, I was about to say, that number seems improbably low by today's uh, standards. Of course. But it was a lot of money to you and your family at that yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we first moved into the room, the rent was $28 a month. And then when they raised it by $2, my grandmother said, I can't believe it, a dollar a day for a room. You know, she, <laughs> so that was like astronomical. But it was very strange, Sam, because I, I knew I was going to get to go to UCLA. I, it wasn't like I wish or anything. I just, I knew it, but I didn't know how. And so every morning when we would get up, our room was facing the lobby of the apartment building. And over the desk, the manager's desk, would be these pigeonhole mailboxes. And so I would open the door and see if we had an envelope in our slot. And this one morning, there was one, and I put on my robe, and I went and got the envelope and brought it back into the room and looked at it. And my name was typewritten Mm -hmm. and the address. And I opened it up. There was a $50 bill. (laughs) Of course, that was my tuition. And to this day... I don't know where that came from. I know it wasn't Nanny or she would have talked about it. And nobody that we knew had that, that kind of money. It just kind of very strange, magically appeared. And I got to go to UCLA. I was hoping to major mm-hmm. in journalism, but there was no major in journalism at UCLA. You could take a journalism course and join the Daily Bruin, which I did. But I had to pick another major, a different major. So I was looking through the catalog and I saw theater arts, English, and what it would offer and it included playwriting courses and writing courses. And I thought, well, that's good. Every theater major, whether or not they want to write or direct or build scenery or whatever, had to, as freshmen, take courses in acting, scenery building, lighting, costuming, aside from all the other requirements, you know, like English and history and so forth. So I had to go to this acting class. I was terrified. So I had to do a scene. And uh, the first scene I did, I was awful. And the teacher gave me a D 
the only reason she didn't give me an F was because at least I memorized <laughs> this monologue. But then the next time we were supposed to do a scene, I teamed up with this young man. We decided we would do something from Noel Coward, which would be light and fun and easy. And it was a scene from Red Peppers, which Noel Coward wrote. And we had to kind of sing a little bit. And so I pretended I was Betty Grable with a Cockney accent. And I did it. And she gave us A's. Yeah. Well, Carol, do you want to give it a try? Oh, no, no. <laughs> That's too long ago. <laughs> No. I said oh, I my. wouldn't ask you to do the Tarzan. I never said anything about Betty. <laughs> well, what's thrilling is that, you know, was she one of my very favorite movie stars, but when I got my show, she was one of my guests. And was that a thrill? And Rita Hayworth. Many of the people from your childhood ended up on the Carol Burnett show. Yeah, Bing Crosby. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of all the people that Nanny and I used to go to see and watch and love, you know, Mickey Rooney. Mm -hmm. Just unbelievable, because these were people I idolized when I was a kid. But before all that, mm -hmm. you were a scared theater student. Yeah. But at the end of your freshman year, you were awarded the most promising newcomer award. Yes. Yeah. It was an award accompanied by a handwritten note. I want to know, do you still have that note? It's in my office. It's the very first award I ever got. What does it say? It says that for her performances, and there were two one acts that we did in Hello Out There, performance in Hello Out There, and there was another one called Keep Me a Woman Grown, which was a hillbilly thing. And for her performances and so forth, and we're awarding her the Spotlight Award. Spotlight was a, the theater newspaper as the most promising newcomer of 1952. I was blown away by that. And by then, I was hooked on wanting to be a performer, but I didn't tell Nanny or Mama, not for a long time. But you kept performing in college because yep. in your junior year, you perform at a house in San Diego. Yes. Afterward, a businessman and his wife approach you, mm -hmm. learning of your financial limitations and offered both you and your future husband at the time mm -hmm. a $1,000 loan. Yep to make the cross-country trek to New York City. Right. What were the conditions of that loan? It was a musical comedy workshop class, and our professor was going to go to this party in San Diego, and he said, why don't you kids come down? You'll be the entertainment for the party, and I'll grade you on that. So that's how that happened. And then this gentleman and his wife afterwards came up to me and were very complimentary and wanted to know, what I wanted to do, what we wanted to do with our lives. And we said, go to New York. And, you know, I wanted to be Ethel Merman or Mary Martin someday. And, and he said, why aren't you there now? And I said, well, we, you know, we, we're saving up our pennies. And that's when he offered us each $1,000. And he said, the stipulations are you must use this money to go to New York, right? You must pay it back when you can, no interest. And you must never reveal my name. And if you are successful, you must promise to help other people out that you have faith in. And so I remember we cash. I cashed the check on the way home. I had all this cash. And I went into the room and Nanny 
I hadn't told my grandmother what was going on. Mm. And then I had all this cash, and I remember I threw it down on top of the Murphy bed, and I thought she was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> she was $1,000, you know. And she said, oh, my goodness, what we can do with all that money. And I said, I have to... I have to use it to go to New York. And she was not happy with that. She was very unhappy. And Mama didn't have much faith. They did see me do a scene, though, once at the musical workshop. And I did, I must say, Mama came up to me. and She said, you were a really good kid. You know, that made me feel good. But they didn't have faith that I would do anything in New York or be successful. But I had to go because that was the stipulation. Mama, as I said, lives down the hall, and my kid sister was down there. Mama and Nanny were having a talk about my going to New York, and I was packing in the one room that Nanny and I lived in, and my kid sister came in, and she looked at me, and she said, Sissy, I said, what, sweetheart? She said, what's a pipe dream? So, you know, that that's what they thought it was, <laughs> and uh, I can understand it. It didn't deter me. I didn't know I was going to be as successful as I became. But all I wanted was if, if I could be in a musical comedy show on Broadway and just pay for the my rent and food and clothes, I would be happy. That's what I wanted to ask you, Carol, because when you make that journey from California to New York, mm-hmm. it's during the summer of 1954. Yep. You're 21 years old. Moving to a big new city, mm-hmm. did you have any doubts or anxieties around the move? I was so naive. I think what happened was I was so, um, the movies, Mickey and Judy putting on a show and winding up on Broadway, that was, <laughs> was what I had no doubt that I would be okay. And, but then, and uh, I mean, how. How dumb was I? I was really naive. I think <laughs> I'm on the airplane, and I'm looking. I don't know where I'm going to go. I have my cardboard suitcase with very little inside. I'm looking at the, the New Yorker magazine, and it had an ad for the Algonquin Hotel. And I m- remember reading about that with the round table with all the wits, you know, Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley and all. And I thought, well, I'll just go to the Algonquin Hotel. So I landed and I took the bus in to town and I went to the Algonquin Hotel and asked for a room and got a room, but it was $9 a day. Oh. And I thought, oh boy. Your grandmother would have not been happy about that. Absolutely. And I thought, oh, and also, you know, I'd spent money on the airplane ticket. And I also spent money because I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled uh, in, uh, in California. And so that took a little bit of chunk of money uh, from the $1,000. So I had to be really careful. But at the time, that was at least I was going to spend the night there. And I called home to tell Nanny and Mama and everybody that I arrived okay. And they started crying, and I started to cry, and they said, come home. I said, I just got here. And um, I hung up. I remember I unpacked, and there was a closet in the room for my clothes. Well, when we lived in the one room, Mm -hmm. the closet nanny that we had was chock full of, she was kind of a hoarder. So my 
my closet was the bathroom shower rack. <sighs> so I never had a closet. And so when I saw this closet at the end, oh God, could I, oh my, but I was crying. And I automatically hung my clothes up on the shower rack in the bathroom. Then I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I turned the radio on. They said there was this hurricane coming through. You know, it was going to hit that night because it was starting to rain. And it was Hurricane Carol. And I thought, whoa, you know, that's kind of a nice omen. So I, I calmed down after that. The next morning, I was going through my papers, wallet and everything. And I had a telephone number of a girl who had been in the opera workshop who graduated. She was about four years old, three or four years older than me. And she came to New York. She was kind of like the American Julie Andrews. She was just had a lovely voice and very sweet and cute and funny. And she said, if you ever get to New York, this is where I am. So I called her. It was the only number I had. Mm. And she said, where are you? And I said, I'm at the Algonquin Hotel. She said, get out of there and come over to where I am. And she was living in a place called the Rehearsal Club, which housed 25 young women who mm-hmm. want to be in show business. So I packed up, put it in my cardboard suitcase and went up or just walked up to, in the rain, walked up to where the rehearsal club was. I think it was on West 54th. And it was a brownstone, four-story brownstone. And there was a parlor downstairs. The girls all lived throughout the brownstone. And so Ellie was the girl's name, my friend's name. She said, let me introduce you to Miss Carlton, who is the uh, house mother or whatever you want to call it. She interviewed me and said, you know, these are the rules. And, you know, there no men above the parlor can come in. I mean, it was all very up and up and strict. And the rent was room and board, $18 a week. So that was pretty good. And there were these rich ladies in New York, the society bunch and so forth, who sponsored the club. So that's why the rent could be so little. And then she put me into what they call the transit room, which was on the first floor. It's a huge room and it had four other girls in it. So there were five of us and each one of us had a cot and a dresser, you know, to put our things in and one closet and one bathroom for five women. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fine. I mean, at least I had a, I was sleeping on a cot. I'd been sleeping on a couch my whole life. So this, to me, kind of a luxury. So do you think being naive helped you? Yes, without a doubt. I was kind of fearless, except for the time, you know, when I hung up and was crying the night before. But once I got into the club and I saw all these other girls and everything, and everybody was high energy and, oh, I'm going to this audition tomorrow. And I quickly made some friends aside from Ellie, the gal who got me into the club. And so I learned kind of the ropes. There was a a local uh, paper called Show Business, and it would list where where there would be auditions and cattle calls and all of that and everything. So I caught on pretty quickly, but I realized I would have to get a job in order to, because my money would run out. So it was okay with Ms. Carlton if you got a part-time job, but you still had to prove that you were going trying to get an agent or trying to get a, mm-hmm. you still had to do that. So I got a part-time job at ladies tea room, 
as a hat check girl. And I shared the job with one of my roommates. So she would work three days a week. I would work four. And then we'd switch back. And I would work three and she would work four. No salary, but we got our meals and we got to keep our tips. That was tips. So I averaged in tips about $30 a week. You have a remarkable memory. Well, (laughs) I've written about this so much. And yeah, I do pretty much about that. I might not be able to tell you what I did two weeks ago, but... (laughs) So, Carol, I have a question. What did you do two weeks ago? Could you tell me? I really would like to know. (laughs) How cruel of you to ask. (laughs) Actually, I'm probably doing, except for talking to you, the same thing, because it's like Groundhog's Day with this pandemic. I am honored to break up your Groundhog's Day. (laughs) Thank you. In your early years of New York, as you're describing... You're fighting and clawing for work. Yeah. And it wasn't really until 1957 where you had your big break. And I want to go to this. You performed this song called I Made a Fool of Myself over John Foster Dulles. Yeah. Who was, at the time, for those who don't know, our very bland Secretary of State. He hardly ever smiled. He was just very kind of serious. So it it was a funny song for a young girl to sing about that because actually it happened. I was working with a uh, with Ken Welch, who was a singing coach and a special material writer, and I would work. He would coach me for ten dollars an hour every week, and I would pay him in quarters and dimes from my tips from Ladies Tea Room. And he got an idea because this was at the height of the Elvis Presley craze where everybody, all the teenage girls, young girls are screaming over him. He said, wouldn't it be funny if we, if I wrote a song about you being mad over John Foster Dulles? And I said, that's very funny. So he wrote it and I auditioned it at a nightclub called the Blue Angel. Mm-hmm. And Kenny had already written a 20 minute act for me. So I did the act and I did the song and the Blue Angel hired me. So now I have a nightclub gig. For those listening... Why don't we oh my goodness. Uh, listen to the song for a moment? Here is young Carol Burnett. I made a fool of myself over John Foster Dollar. Oh, I made a chump of myself over John Foster Dollar. I saw him was at the UN. Oh, I never had been one to swoon over men, but I swooned and the drum started pounding and then I made a fool of myself over John We'll be right back after a quick break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. You perform the song on Ed Sullivan, Jack Parr, it all goes very well. And riding high on this hit, your telephone wouldn't stop ringing. And then, one evening, you perform this song again, and I wanted you to walk us through that night on the heels of all that success. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was still working at the Blue Angel. And of course, I've, I started to get very cocky about this success, this brief success. And so I it was, I think, the first show this one night. I'm still there at the Angel. And I came, and I always opened with the dullest song. And I sang it, and, and the place was packed. There was hardly any laughs. And I thought, what's wrong? You know, it, I mean, they were staring at me like an oil painting. And I thought, what, what did I do wrong? You know, and I could barely get off the stage. I mean, there wasn't enough applause to see me off the stage when I was finished. And I ran upstairs because my dressing room was at the end of a long hallway on the second floor. And I knew I had to do the show again at midnight. And I remember I'm walking down the hall and there's this inebriated man <laughs> coming towards me to go into the men's room. And he was kind of weaving a little bit. And I, I, and I had to pass, you know, go past him. And he stopped me and he said, hey, you know, he said, weren't you that little lady who was just on downstairs? And I thought, oh, gosh, he's good. Thank you. That's so sweet. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am. <laughs> and he said, boy, you stink. <laughs> I think he sounded more drunk than that. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, you know, and he said, boy, you stink. And he turned around and went into the men's room. And I went back to my little one little dressing room and I thought, Okay, you know, you gotta do it the way you did it before. I think I was just too sure of myself or something, you know. So the second show, midnight show, went better 
and I have never been cocky ever since. What do you think cockiness does to comedy? Because, you know, people always talk about comedy and there's a fine line between needing confidence to perform right. and then having cockiness come along with it. All right. When you see a ham actor chewing up the scenery, they've got confidence, but that's also too cocky and it's just not entertaining. It's off-putting. So that's what it means to me. I don't like that person. You know, why are they doing it that way? The audience needs to feel that the performer is sure of themselves, but not too sure of themselves. There's a, an attitude. You know, somebody comes out with an attitude, oh boy, you're really going to love me. You're going to love this. As with anybody in real life, if somebody comes on to you like that, you're put off by it. You said after that, you were never cocky again. Right. I wanted to know, do you think you've done a good job in your life and career managing ego? Oh, yeah, I think so. I'm always mindful and grateful with the opportunities that were given to me. I remember when I was in New York, there was one job that I thought I was going to get. It was like in the chorus of, of something. I can't remember the, what I was. It was an off-Broadway thing. And it was narrowed down to me and another girl. Mm. And I thought I had it. I, I thought I had it, but I didn't. She did. And what saved me from being discouraged was, I don't know where this came from, but I'll always be grateful. I thought to myself, well, you know what? It's her turn. Uh. It's not my turn yet. My turn will come, but this was her turn. And then I was okay. That's not a mantra you hear very often in this business. Right. But, you know, I get letters or people asking me, you know, they want to get into the business or whatever. And I just say, you know, you're going to be in for a lot of uh, discouragement. Like you're not going to get everything that you go out for. But always think, maybe it's that other person's turn. And that will give you courage. To keep, keep on keeping on. You did keep on keeping on because by 1961, you're doubling on The Gary Moore Show and Once Upon a Mattress on Broadway. Right. One night, Julie Andrews comes on The Gary Moore Show and the reception to her appearance with you is very positive. From there, the idea was born for you and Julie to do yep. a special together. It would later be called Julie and Carol at Carnegie Hall. But before that, mm -hmm. what happens in the lead up to you pitching this show to CBS? Well, I was at an affiliates meeting. It was a luncheon and with the Gary Moore group. And there were a couple of vice, CBS vice presidents at our table. And uh, I, was, I was a little bold, I must say. I said, why can't you do, do this show with Julie and me? And their reasoning was, they see me every week and nobody knows who Julie Andrews is except in New York because she hadn't done any movies yet. So what's the big deal? I said, well, then I guess maybe we'll just have to go over to NBC. They're in color at least. You know, I was kind of a little smart aleck at the time. You were bold. <laughs> I was. But they laughed, you know, and Gary laughed. And I remember it was raining like crazy. And so we finished the luncheon. We went Downstairs was on Madison Avenue at the time. Oh, God, it was raining hard. And so the two vice presidents said, we'll wait for you and help you get a taxi. And I said, oh, you know, it's okay. Don't worry. I said, somebody will offer me a ride. Don't worry about it. 
And I swear, I hardly got that sentence out when a beer truck pulled up and this guy <laughs> in, the, in the cabin leaned out and he said, hey, Carol, you need a lift. <laughs> so they hoisted me up into the cabin and they were, the, the two vice presidents were just agog. And that nice truck driver dropped me off in front of my apartment building in New York. And I ran upstairs and the phone was ringing. And I knocked the door and went in, and it was Oscar Katz, who was one of the vice presidents. And he said, Carol, and I said, oh, yeah, hi, Oscar. He said, well, that was pretty wild, that truck driver come. He said, you know what? You've got your show. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, good things happen to me when it rains. I wanted to go to another phone call that happens about five years later, because once you leave the Gary Moore show, you sign a 10-year contract with CBS. And in it, there is this strange clause that says, if you want to do an hour-long variety show, all you had to do was push a button and CBS would have to pay for 31-hour pay-or-play variety shows. Yeah, it was the last week of 1966, so we only had a week to go, and that clause would be out. Tell people how that phone call sounded. <laughs> well, it was uh, my husband and I just moved to California, and we put a down payment on a house, and we weren't doing too well. We looked at each other, and he said, maybe you should push that button. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I called New York, and uh, Mike Dan who had been the other vice president at that luncheon, said, how are you doing? Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. What's cooking? You know, and I said, Mike, thank you. I'm calling to push that button. And he really didn't know what I was talking about because it had been five years. And he said, what? And I explained it to him. He said, well, let me get back to you, you know. And I've said this before. I'm sure he got a lot of lawyers out of a Christmas party or new, you know, and he called the next day and he said, yeah, I see, I see, Carol, but you know, that I'll never forget, he said, comedy variety is a man's game. It's not for you gals. I mean, it's like Sid Caesar and Milton Berle and Jackie Gleason, now Dean Martin. And he said he had this sitcom he wanted me to do called Here's Agnes, which is <laughs> a good picture. It And I said, I don't want to be Agnes every week because I learned this from the Gary Moore show. 
and watching Sid Caesar and all. I I want to do characters. I want to have music. I want to have guest stars. I want a rep company. I want it to be like summer stock, like we do a show, musical comedy review every week. And they had to put us on the air. If I hadn't had that contract, I wouldn't be talking to you now the way I am today. How did you get that contract? I don't know. It was an agent because I was still on the Gary Moore show when they did it. And I was very successful on the Gary Moore show. And so CBS wanted to put me under contract. And this agent, his, I think it was Ted Ashley, the Ashley agency at the time, somehow got them to agree to this. And I remember when they told me that, I said, oh, I'll never want to host a show. I wouldn't know how to do it, you know. So I never thought I would ever do it until that last week of the fifth year. You said something about this. When you have that phone call, the executive says to you, Carol, it's a man's right. game. It's the man's game. And throughout, you know, the sort of history of the show, which goes from 67 to 78, and then in the intervening, shoot, 35, 40 years to bring us to present time, there has been so much written mm-hmm. about you as this kind of feminist icon, a, a woman who broke down the barriers for other women in comedy to do the kind of work of a Sid Caesar or, or you know, Gary Moore or Jack Parr, any of these people who worked in big screen mainstream television. I wondered, because I did read your book, and as much of a pioneer as you are, there isn't a whole lot in the book about being this kind of feminist icon. Do you see yourself that way? I I never felt like that. It was just an extension of my work on the Gary Moore show, as far as I was concerned. And it's just, okay, you know, I didn't think, oh gosh, you know, I'm the first woman to, actually I wasn't. Dinah Shore had a musical show that she hosted, but I was the first one to do a musical comedy thing patterned after Sid Caesar. But I never thought anything about it at all. And interviews and stuff, and now, you know, a lot of stuff being written about, which I'm very flattered, you know, that Tina Fey and Amy and a lot of those wonderful women would say, oh, well, you're the reason I was able to do this. And my response always is, if I'd never been born, they'd be doing what they're doing. They would have found a way to do what they're doing. When you're making the show, I wanted you to talk about the different kind of managerial style you had versus a Lucille Ball who became your friend shortly thereafter. You know, Miss Ball was sort of aggressive and, and fearless and was criticized for it on her show. That's because she was a woman. Right. You know, they were aggressive and fearless and, you know, tough. It's okay if you're Jackie Gleason. But Lucy, they adored her. Her crew adored her. She might say, hey, what the hell are you doing with that lighting up there? That's not working. And Jim would fix it. And she said, I knew you could do it because you're the best. Mm. Uh, You know, she never, nobody ever took anything personally because she was just saying what she felt not in a mean way, but she, she learned how to do that because she never had to do it when she was married to Desi because Desi did everything. I remember her telling me he would, would oversee the scripts. He would over the cameras, over the lighting, over the costuming, everything and all. 
She said, all I had to do was come in on a Monday and be silly, crazy Lucy. But she was tough in a good way. Mm. Tough can't be always bad. But I could never be tough because I felt I would tiptoe around something. If the sketch wasn't working on my show, instead of saying, oh, come on, guys, this sucks, fix it. I couldn't do that. I would say to the writers, whatever, could you come down and watch us do this? I'm not doing this so well. Maybe you could help me out with maybe uh, see what you think about this. I would go all around it just not to step on anybody's toes. But it worked. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) You called yourself a first-class chicken. Yeah, I was. I don't like confrontation. Who does? Well, no, some people will thrive on it, but I, I don't. And I wanted it to be happy. And now I remember, <laughs> oh my goodness, Edie Gourmet and I were doing a medley and we were rehearsing in the studio. And it was a medley from Gypsy. And we were wailing away, you know, and all. And the director was in the booth and shooting and we were blocking it. That We were on a platform that was about a foot high kind of back from the edge of the stage. But automatically, as we were getting to the end and we're singing up a storm, we, and I just stepped down off of the platform and walked closer to the rim of the stage so we could be closer to the studio audience. And I remember Dave said, girls, could you just, uh, don't, don't come down, stay up, stay back. Don't come down off of the platform. Well, we went back, we started it again, and we automatically stepped off of the platform again. It was just... It was our instinct as show business. So he finally, on the talkback, he's, okay, girls, he got a little short with it. Don't, don't step down on. And Edie, who never censored herself ever, she says, so why? (laughs) Why can't we? He said, because you're not lit for down there. (laughs) And Edie paused and she said, well, why can't you hit us with a spotlight like in real show business? I wanted to kiss her feet. It was so great, you know. And that's what he had to do. But that just wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. If I had thought about it, I would say, isn't there any way, Dave, that maybe we can be lit down here, do you think? Because it's really hard not to come down. I'd be tap dancing all around it as opposed to, so what's the problem? Why don't you... Use a spotlight. Some of the fondest memories that people have of episodes of The Carol Burnett Show are the guest spots with Rita Hayworth and Betty Grable and Gloria Swanson and Lana Turner. And I wondered, because all of these women were women that you watched on the big screen with your grandmother growing up. Yep. Yeah. When you were doing those scenes with those idols of yours, did it remind you of that little girl running home from the movie theater yes. to reenact the movies with their friends? Of course. Why wouldn't it? It was just uh, a thrill. <laughs> I think I remember saying, I, I wish Nanny were alive to see this because she would have been over the moon. But again, I was an adult and I was able to work with them and put aside the thought about being 10 years old and 11, you know. It it was always a thrill when they first came for, on that first Monday mm-hmm. to the reading, you know, of the script that week. That was when I kind of reverted to being 10 years old. 
seeing them in person for the first time and knowing that they know who I am was just <laughs> like mind boggling. <laughs> but then once we started getting into rehearsal and doing the stuff, it was like having any other kind of guest. The show ended in 1978 yeah. and it was March 28th, the final show. Mm-hmm. At that point, you had done 280 shows, around 2,500 sketches and musical elements, and CBS wanted you to do a 12th season. Yeah. If you don't mind, I wanted to play a clip from that final episode sure. for us to listen to. Sure. This, um, this is an evening of mixed emotions for me. Like graduation, it's a sad and a happy time. It can't be possible that it was 1967 when Harvey, Vicki, Lyle, and I stepped on this stage for the first time because it does seem as if it were only yesterday. Those cliches really have a habit of uh, punching you in the nose, don't they? Recently, um, a lot of people have been running around and expressing their own opinions as to why I decided to quit at the end of this season. And I think I should be the one to tell you, seeing as how I'm the one who really knows. In our 11 years, we have had four different time slots, and we've had our share of being up there in the ratings and being down there in the ratings. And ratings do not have a thing to do with my decision. If they did, I would have called a halt to the proceedings a long time ago because there have been many, many times when they've been a lot lower than they've been this season. And now, I do think it's classier to leave before you're asked to. And the fact that CBS picked our show up for a 12th year and was quite adamant about it is very flattering to all of us here on the show. However, I am adamant, too, and... I, I am so proud of our show, and quite simply, I'm no dummy. Now is the time to put it to bed and to go on to other things, because change is growth. It's hard because all of us around here truly did become a second family. We've been through marriages and divorces and deaths and births. And I know the love that we have shared can never be measured by time. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> what were you feeling hearing that? A bittersweet. And I remember tearing up, I, you know, because it's a, it was a tough decision. I felt it was right. But on the other hand, I knew how much I was going to miss everybody. So it was, it was bittersweet, I guess is a way to put it. And I miss, I miss our Harvey and Tim and Lyle. Vicky and me left. And it was a great rep company. We laughed for 11 years. It was a wonderful time in my life. I'll always be grateful for it. You know, Carol, we can't see each other on this call. Yeah. But I, I wondered if you had been thinking about all the people that helped you make this show and what it was like living with the fact that yeah. most of those people aren't here now. Well, again, life goes on, There's, and things come to an end. But then you have to be grateful that it all existed and that you were able to, oh, I guess, make your dreams real. So I'll always be fortunate. You know, and I, I think about the pandemic and it just selfishly myself. 
I think, you know, I'm kind of glad <laughs> that I'm the age I am because I was able to do what I wanted to do and not be <laughs> shot down in the middle of it the way so many people are today. Yes, I'm 25. Oh, my God, you're, you're a little baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I was just thinking, I get a lot of fan mail, people from kids who are 10 years old, 15, even people like you, as old as 25, <laughs> because of uh, we had the DVDs out and YouTube and MeTV, and before the pandemic hit, I was going on the road and doing 90 minutes of Q&A mm-hmm. in various theaters around the country. And uh, I remember, I've told this before, but I love the story. You know, I just threw it open, you know, no plants in the audience or anything. And there was a little boy in the second row, I think it was in Texas. And he raised his hand and I called on him and I said, first, what's your name? And he said, Andrew. And I said, how old are you, Andrew? And he said, nine I said, and you know who I am? And without missing a beat, he said, surprisingly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love that. It was so cute. So I've had it really, I've had it good. And I know that. When the show ended, what did you want for yourself after that? Well, what I finally, what I did, I, I did theater. And I would do, I remember I did same time next year, twice, once with Burt Reynolds at his theater in Florida, and then another in Hollywood with Dick Van Dyke. I did Plaza Suite with uh, George Kennedy. That was in Hollywood. And I did some movies, and I started writing books. So I kept, I kept busy, but I was doing different things. And I enjoyed that a lot. That's really, you know, what I said in my last speech, you know, on the final show, change is growth. And I I wanted, it was time to do other things. Do you feel like you've grown? Oh, sure. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) When I think back to, you know, what I started out and everything, I mean, you can't live this long with you. Well, for the most part, you grow and you learn. And I've had my ups and I've had my really downs, but I've learned to cope and be grateful for what I am and what I have and how I feel mm-hmm. and my health and, you know, all of that. So I'm, I'm in a good place. And how you feel is the key line to what you just said, because for people who know your work and your life, you are someone who's overcome tremendous grief and tragedy. And I wanted to know, how did you get through it? Well, I think you might be talking about my daughter, Carrie. I lost her. She was 38 years old. I lost her to cancer. And we were very close. We were joined at the hip. We worked together. Mm -hmm. We wrote a play together that made it to Broadway, directed by Hal Prince. We were very, very close. So when she died, it was very, very hard. We had been in the middle of writing Hollywood Arms, the play, and I lost her, and uh, I didn't want to get out of bed. I mean, it was just so overwhelming. And my husband Brian said, "You got to, you got to finish the play. You owe it to Carrie, then you owe it to Hal Prince, who is was going to direct." Having that project helped tremendously. 
because I felt he would said a little prayer to carry. I said, just be with me. Let me feel that you're with me when I'm trying to finish the play that we, we were writing together. Mm. And she was, I felt it. And, uh, I was able to finish the play. I remember I said, give me a sign, Carrie, that you're with me. We were on the way to Chicago for the uh, previews. She had a bird of paradise, a tattooed on her right shoulder, and that was her favorite flower. So I, we checked into the hotel room, and Hal Prince was, had already been there. And I walk in, and there is this array on the dining room table in the hotel of paradise. I said, my God, you know, and I said, welcome, Carol. Can't wait to see you. Rehearsal, Hal. So I called his room. I said, how did you know she loved Birds of Paradise? He said, I didn't. I just asked him to send up something exotic. Mm. And then the next night, we went out to dinner with Hal. We were in a restaurant. And the maitre d' came up and showed us a bottle of champagne, for, you know, complimentary of the restaurant. And on the label, it said Louise. And that was my mother's name and Carrie's middle name. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I'll take that as a, it, it might be just coincidental, but I'll take it as, as a fact that she's with me. And then opening night, it rained, and Carrie and I were both suckers for rain. So I had three signs. When I said, give me a sign that you're with me, I had three. All the signs with her, they speak to this philosophy you seem to have. You know, there's this quote you wrote, there's something bigger than we are. I don't want to sound woo-woo, but there are so many wonderful coincidences in my life. Yeah. There's the anonymous money in the mailbox. There's the burly man on the side of the road. There's the $1,000 loan mm -hmm. that you didn't have to pay back with interest. In many ways, pockets of your life have unfolded with the same improbable magic, like the kismet of the films you watched growing up with your grandmother. Do you feel like there's been a bit of divine intervention? I, I like to think that. Yeah, I guess. Because, I mean, <laughs> you know, what it ha has happened to me is pretty unusual. Unless maybe miracles have happened to other people and they don't recognize them. I recognize them as a miracle. I like how I said all that and you said, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Oh, well. I gave a passionate sort of question, and it was met with, yeah, yeah, that could, that could be it. That could <laughs> yeah, be it. Yeah, I think so. You might be onto something there, right? So I may be on, look, I'm 25, but I may be onto something. <laughs> My final question for you before we leave. You've always had these visions in your life that you're talking about. You saw yourself on campus going to UCLA. You saw yourself living in New York City. You saw yourself performing on Broadway under director George Abbott. Yep. All of these things happened for you. So mm -hmm. I want to know, what do your visions look like now at 87? I think I, I'm not really focused that much on the future. I, it's really kind of every day. Because uh, so much has happened, behind, you know, and I, I go to sleep at night and I have gratefuls that I talk about that happened during the day. Usually it's pretty much the same now. 
I'm grateful I have a good marriage. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful we have a roof over our heads, food on the table, clothes on our back. I'm grateful for, and then I maybe did well. What did I do well today? Mm. Well, I called up some old friends that I was thinking about. And in fact, a few weeks ago, I did, had it did well. I called Carl Reiner because I was thinking about him. He said, how are you doing, Don? And I said, I'm just thinking about you. And I figure, you know, when I think about people that I love, I'm going to give them a call. And I had a great conversation with him. And then he died a few weeks later. Mm. So that was a did well. You know, and doing well is doing for, again, for somebody else or getting in touch with someone that you haven't been in touch with, especially during this time. Say, how are you doing? You know, thinking of you, sending love. Well, I am sending you love today. Thank you, Sam. I am very grateful, to use your word, <laughs> that you sat with me for this podcast. Well, thank you. And I, I was happy to be a part of it. And boy, do you do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, you know more about me than I do. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I, I, I mean it as a compliment. So you stay safe and well, Sam. You too, Carol Burnett. Thank you very much. Okay, sir. You take care. Bye-bye. So long. That's our show. I want to give a special thanks to Stephen Sauer and Jane McKnight. If you're listening on April 26th, you can watch Carol Burnett, 90 Years of Laughter and Love, tonight on NBC at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tomorrow, the special will be available to stream on Peacock. If you want to learn more, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear other conversations with very funny people, I'd recommend our talks with Ted Danson, Norman Lear, Quinta Brunson, Natasha Leone, Titus Burgess, Alan Alda, and Bill Hader. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Research and production from Paulina Suarez. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Sinica, and Layla Register. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Stars, Carrie Brody, David Clover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday with actor Betty Gilpin. Until then, stay safe and so long. Smart. 
smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.